This episode of the Sunday Salon is sponsored by Number Three London Dry Gin, the only gin to have ever been voted world's best gin four times. Containing just six botanicals, it brings together the perfect refreshing balance of juniper, citrus and spice, ideal for the ultimate dry martini, or, my favourite, a gin and tonic. Distilled in Holland, the home of gin, it took them two years to create their masterpiece, working with master distillers, top mixologists and Dr David Cluton, the only man to hold a PhD in gin. The perfect addition to any drinks trolley, number three is available to purchase at selected stores nationwide, including Waitrose and Berry Brothers and Rudd, for £35. Discover gin just as it should be. Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories, and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. My guest this week is Jessica Pan, a freelance journalist whose writing has appeared in The Guardian Weekend magazine, Stylist, Elle, and more. She grew up in the US and has lived in China but now lives in London. Earlier this year, she published her first book, Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, an introvert's year of living dangerously, which charts 12 months of her trying to live as an extrovert by doing everything from stand-up comedy to talking to total strangers. It's hilarious and a brilliant read for this time of year, so I'm thrilled to have her on. So Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's such a joy to have you. I, I really enjoyed the book, so oh, I'm really you. thrilled you're here. Um, first of all, let's let's start with the book. How would you describe it and what made you write it? I would describe the book as part memoir and part experiment, where I spend a year living like an extrovert, which for me means doing all these things like talking to strangers, public speaking, performing comedy, basically like all of my nightmares <laughs> for a year. And I, along the way, I get expert advice from psychologists, other comedians, um, other mentors. I think I reached this point. I It was around the time I turned, I think, 31, and I felt really low. I became a freelancer. I was working from home. I didn't see anyone all day. And I also felt like most of my friends in London had moved away or they were having babies, or they were just gone. And I realized, my God, like I live in this amazing, vibrant city and I'm talking to no one all day, Mm. every day. Mm. And I just felt like, what am I missing by not interacting with people or making new friends? And so I just decided I'm gonna gonna try to live like a different person for one year, just to see what that can teach me and see how the the other half or the other third lives. Because I guess um, one third to one half of people are introverts. So mm. I felt like I wanted to be an extrovert for a year. It's really interesting because obviously al- along the course of the book, as you've just mentioned, you do all these sort of stunts, as it were, these kind of unusual experiences. But you actually, it was actually a sort of organic unusual experience tipped you over into this mission where you uh, signed up for a challenge at a gym. I wonder if you can tell me about that because it was, um, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, that was the lowest of the low points. Um, yeah, I was, I had made that mistake when you're feeling kind of depressed and lonely and like your career is going nowhere and you're like, I'll just join a gym and it'll be fine. I'll get fit. And I just sort of 
took it too far and my world just became very small and enclosed and I entered this like fitness competition and I just sort of got really competitive with this other woman and I did like really stupid things that maybe I won't talk about right now but they are in the book and I just afterwards I thought oh my god I don't know what's happened to me I feel like an insane person like I need to go out and meet new people and explore new things and challenge myself because I think when we stay in our heads too much we can drive ourselves crazy. And you actually come from a a family of extroverts. You grew up in Texas. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and and what your family was like versus what you were like as a child? So my parents are the chattiest people in the entire world. They will talk to anybody they see, anyone on a plane or in a restaurant, people going about their business. My mom loves to chat to strangers. And I always found this horribly embarrassing. I hated it. Um, I'd sort of cower away while she did it and my dad's kind of the same way he'll ask like really personal things to total strangers and yeah I just it's just a family of extroverts and they never really understood why I didn't want to have like really big birthday parties when I was little Mm. but for me that was like my worst nightmare I did Mm. not want to do that Mm. and for them it was their way of just showing that they loved me and so it was I don't think they really understood that I was an introvert until this book came out. Mm. And then it all sort of clicked for them. Like, oh, yeah, you did, like, read in your room a lot. And you didn't want to have slumber parties or go to, like, parties very often. And you didn't initially realize you were an introvert either, did you? Because you had a boss in Beijing, is that right, who introduced you to the fact that you might be an introvert. Can you tell me that story? I didn't know what being an introvert was. I'd never heard of it, really. Um, I always just thought growing up that everyone else secretly hated everything too. (laughs) They all wanted to go home as well. And I was like, why are we all pretending? But I didn't really ask that. Or I also felt like it was just me and it was a weird thing to say that I didn't want to always be out socializing all the time. And then, yeah, when I was 24, like you said, I was working in Beijing as an editor and it was an open plan office and I just felt like I couldn't get any work done because people talked to me all day. There were so many distractions. And so I would just stay really late at work to then like power through all of it. And like my editor sort of saw that and she pulled me aside and sort of talked about the difference between introverts and extroverts and how introverts, you know, get their energy from being alone and are really good at concentrating Mm. and how extroverts kind of thrive in social situations. And as soon as she said that, I immediately felt recognized and seen and Mm. also felt so relieved that I wasn't weird because like I said, like a third to half of the population is this way, but I just didn't know that. Mm, mm. And you're not just an introvert, you class yourself as a shintrovert, um, which is a shy introvert. Can you can you tell me about that and, and, and how that manifests itself in your day-to-day existence? So some introverts, um, they need to recharge alone. They are, they like, they prefer one-on-one conversations, but they have no problem with, you know, getting on stage and performing or giving a huge presentation that doesn't scare them. Whereas for me, that that's absolutely terrifying. So I'm both, as you said, like shy and an introvert. And I think mm. that statistically introverts are more likely to be shy than extroverts, but definitely not all introverts are shy and some extroverts are shy. Mm. Um, and I think shyness is also defined as like the fear of judgment from others. So I didn't want to talk to strangers. I didn't want to mm. perform um, as well as being an introvert. and in my daily life, it sort of manifests itself in that 
you know, when I did have a full-time job, if there was a chance to give a presentation or lead a meeting, I never wanted to do it. I Mm -hmm. always said no. I never gave talks. I never led workshops. And I felt like I was totally putting a a ceiling on my career by saying no to those things. Mm -hmm. And that's also another reason that I wanted to do this because I felt like, okay, I've lived most my my entire life saying no to these things. What's the worst could happen if I just tried them for a year? Mm. And one of the first things you do, as you uh, mentioned earlier, is this mission where you, you strike up conversation with strangers um, about the Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you, can you tell me that um, and, and, and explain what the logic was behind that particular question? So I have this massive fear of talking to strangers. And in a way, I moved to London and that was kind of a great place because nobody talked to each other on mm. the tube or the train. Um, before I was in Beijing and then before that Australia and then America so people were just generally chattier and I felt like I'd found my people in London but then it sort of made me more socially anxious because if I needed to talk to somebody I felt like I couldn't Mm. like if someone's bag was open and I wanted to tell them it was open I felt too scared to do that or if I needed help I would feel scared and this was my very first challenge was talking to strangers and so I tried to do it and I really couldn't do it. It was too scary for me. And so I called up the psychologist in Boston named Stefan Hoffman and he deals with social anxiety. And he told me that social anxiety is totally normal for humans. We don't want to be rejected. Everybody has it. And if you don't have it, there's probably something wrong with you. And then he told me that for his patients, the best way to cure them is to have them humiliate themselves again and again and again so they can see that actually, you know, no one's going to fire them. No one's going to divorce them. Their friends are going to abandon them. It's totally fine. It's just embarrassing. Mm. Um, so I'll have people like go into a coffee shop and spill coffee all over themselves again and again or ask people for on the subway because it's guaranteed rejection. And when he was telling me this, I was like, oh my God, that sounds horrific, like the worst thing ever. And and I kind of had to know like what he would choose for me. And he said, okay, so you live in London um, and you're shy. So I'll have you talk to strangers on the tube and ask them, excuse me, I just forgot. Is there a queen of England? And if so, what is her name? (laughs) And he said, you can't go around asking like little ladies or like people with dogs. Like you have to just decide to do it and ask the first people who come towards you because otherwise you will not get over this fear. (laughs) And when he first said that, I was like, there is no way I'm doing that. Like, could you do that? (laughs) I just don't know. I just don't know. No, probably not. (laughs) I mean, I have had to do some quite embarrassing things in my time as a journalist. True. But when it's for a feature, you can always, there's always the sort of get out of, you're usually accompanied by a photographer, which immediately alerts people to the fact that it's not real. Right, right. Yeah. There was no photographer. It was just me being seen to be insane. Um, yeah, but it was a good first challenge because it was the worst one by far. It was the scariest one I did. And one of the things that sort of was even more amusing for you in this situation was the fact that people didn't answer as you expected them to. Yes. So I remember before I did it, I was texting my best friend, Rachel, before she'd moved to Paris. And that's like one reason I was so alone. And I was saying, I don't think I can do this. Like, I really don't want to do this. Like, I know what's going to happen. They're just going to say the queen's name and look at me like I'm stupid. Like, do I really have to do this? And she texted back saying, you have no idea what people are going to do. You can't know until you do it. 
And so I just sort of was like, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. I stopped the first person who was a man and I said, excuse me, I just forgot. Is there a queen of England? And if so, what is her name? And he was like, the queen of England? And I was like, yeah, who, who is she? And he said, it's Victoria. <laughs> And I was so stunned that it actually shocked me out of my fear of him because I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, it's Victoria. And he like walked off. And and then it happened. Yeah, I stopped another man and I asked the same question. He said it's Victoria as well. And all of a sudden I just felt like I shouldn't be the one who's embarrassed. Like I feel fine. So. Um, you also do a fair bit of public speaking, which is really interesting because I think lots of people are scared of public speaking, not just introverts and not just shy people it's it's a sort of pretty pretty widespread phobia um and you do you do a couple of different things um you do stand up tell me about that i mean part of me thinks stand up is is such a sort of horrifically outlandish thing that maybe that's slightly less intimidating than sort of giving a ted talk or something where you're trying to be sensible but perhaps not yeah, true, because if you fail at stand-up, lots of people fail at that. Mm. Um, but also it's so scary because it's not a warm audience. They kind of sometimes want you to fail. They're mm. going to heckle you. So with a TED Talk, you might not do well at it, but no one's going to yell at you or mm. boo you mm. off the stage. And I just think my big issue with comedy was I felt very silly going on stage because it felt to me like an announcement of like, I'm so funny, you're going to listen to me and I'm going to make you laugh. Like this brash confidence that I don't have. Um, but actually, most people don't have that feeling when they get on stage. And so I just had to just push that aside. Um, comedy was definitely terrifying. I think I think I just felt like, okay, you're basically going to live the life of someone else in this moment. Just embrace that. Mm. Just go on stage. You can't be shy and timid. You have to have swagger because Sarah Barron, who I interview about this, she was like, as soon as um, an audience smells fear, like they just know, they immediately turn on you and you can't give that to them. So I just had to go on stage and act like I wasn't scared. And you do the Moth podcast at the Union Chapel. How was that different? That was my first public speaking thing and I was... Um, very scared. I feel like there's a theme, but like I didn't do anything I wanted to do in this book. Like mm. if it was something I wanted to do, it couldn't go in it. So my husband's like, you did this to yourself. But um, that was, it was a warm audience, but it's 900 people. It was being recorded. Mm. They paid money for it. I felt a lot of pressure to deliver. And I, like I said, I've never done that before. I've never, I don't lead meetings. I don't give presentations, nothing. And I had to go to like, you know, speech therapist, mm. mentor. I had to practice a lot. And I just felt like during it, I I couldn't believe it was happening, but I also couldn't focus on that or else I would have messed up. Um, yeah, but I felt like I crossed through the other side afterwards, if that makes sense. Mm. Like I finally did it, mm. this big scary thing. And I felt so exhilarated because I couldn't believe that I'd done this thing that I never, ever, ever thought I could do. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's a resource that you can then draw on forever and in subsequent things. You know, the more you do that, you think, well, it wasn't that bad. So, you know, I'm still alive. <laughs> no, exactly. I think about that all the time. And also with comedy, I was like, okay, you did that. You can do this. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's resilience. Um, tell me about your speech therapist because it wasn't a wholly pleasant experience. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that, you know, she would just be like, you're amazing, you're great, you got this, and would like coddle me. And really it was more of this tough love, like get over it, let's do this. You rehearse in front of me several times. I'm gonna tell you what's wrong with it. Like her technique was also to heckle me when I was giving it because then on the night it would be easier. It was just hard for me because I was so scared of it. Like, you know, it was very, I don't, I feel like some people understand that fear and some people just don't, but it was this massive phobia of mm. mine. Mm, mm. It's interesting because you'd previously worked as a TV reporter in Beijing. So yeah. uh, can you tell me, I, this is sort of taking us back before your year of living as an extrovert, of course, but can you tell me how that came about? Because as you said, you've never been the person who does the presentations. How did you wind up being a TV reporter, which sort of sounds like an introvert's worst nightmare? It was. So I am an introvert, but I spent my whole life reading books and reading about other worlds. And I just always wanted to do lots of things. I wanted to travel and, and do lots of scary things. But then again, I have this nature where it does terrify me. So there's always this constant battle between these two desires to live this big, exciting life and also like, okay, but actually, naturally, I'm quite scared of it. Um, and so I sign up for things like that. You know, I sign up for networking events and I don't go to them. And there was this chance to be a TV reporter in Beijing. And I was like, that sounds amazing. That's the life I want to lead. Mm. And then I get there and it was absolutely terrifying and so hard and kind of miserable. And I just thought, okay, this this is not for me. And that's kind of, I just ran away from anything, any kind of public presenting after that until this, this book happened. Mm. And I have to do mm. all these things and really face the fear. Because with the TV reporting, Eventually, I just quit that job and moved to London. Mm, mm, mm. When you were doing your year of living dangerously, you <laughs> you had, um, and you mentioned this earlier, actually, you had extrovert mentors. Can you explain that concept and how it helped you? So I was doing things, and I didn't know how to do them. I didn't know how to talk to strangers. I didn't know how to perform comedy or go to networking events and not be super awkward. I didn't want to, like, ruin my life I needed like I needed professional help um, and they were so useful to talk to psychologists who can back me up with science that actually this is how it works or this is okay um, or to talk to a charisma coach who could help me feel more charismatic and yeah like sort of commiserating with stand-up comedians like Sarah Barron and Phil Wang about bombing on stage because they are very successful but they have bombed on stage mm. So it was really nice to talk to people who'd been through it and were fine. What would you say you learned from the experience? Uh, how has it changed your approach to life now? I think I'm a lot less socially anxious. Mm. It took the whole year to get there, but I don't really have a fear of talking to strangers. I don't love it, but I can do it pretty mm. easily now. And I say yes to things that scare me if I think they're going to be worth it. So. Mm. Um, I was asked to give this talk recently. Obviously, I didn't want to do it, but I knew that I wanted to do it, and I did, and it went fine. And, you know, I got a chance to teach, like, a Guardian masterclass in memoir, and I never would have done that before. But it was really rewarding. I started saying mm. yes to these things. I think I believe in humanity a little bit more. I think mm. people are a little bit nicer and kinder because in my head, I think it's easy for all of us when we're at home and we don't talk to that many people to think that people are bad or cynical or judging us and then going out and meeting so many different people 
who I never would have met otherwise, like an improv, right, or a comedy. I never mm-hmm. would have met these people. And they were generally so nice and warm and understanding. And it just made me feel like the world was a better place, which is a super cheesy answer, but it's true. Hmm. Had you always wanted to be a writer? Was that was that something you aspired to from a young age? I always read a lot. I don't think so because it's just not really considered the thing to do in my family. Like. I really thought I was going to be a doctor my whole life. Mm. And my dad is a doctor and he wanted me to be a doctor. And then I sort of realized I don't have that temperament because I think doctors have to be really confident and calm. And I'm not like that. I'd be like, what's happening? I don't know what's happening either. Like if I was in the emergency room. And I think by moving to a different country, like as soon as I graduated university in the States, I moved to Beijing. Mm. And I think that was a way to be free from any any expectations from like previous friends or my family. And that's when I started, um, you know, working in a magazine. And I felt like this is my calling. And that's when I really wanted to start doing it. I always did write a little bit, but like for fun on the Mm. side. Mm. You mentioned that you concentrate well. How do you handle things like distractions when you are working as a writer? What kind of writer are you? Do you have a routine that you follow? I'm basically nocturnal when I have to write something really big and intense. So for this book, I really wrote it all between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. Oh, wow. Even though I don't I don't want to be that person, I've tried my whole life to be a morning person. It's just never going to happen. And for some reason, something at night happens. I totally am a night owl. I just switch on and feel so much more creative. And I oh, think wow. it's probably as well because there's no one else around to distract you. Mm. You can't go do anything at 3 a.m. really. You yeah. can't go for a run. You can't get a coffee. You can't talk to anyone. So... So when did you sleep if you were writing until 4 a.m.? So embarrassing. I probably would, I would go to sleep and I'd wake up at like noon or one. And I felt so guilty about it, but I don't know why we feel guilty about it because I wasn't sleeping more than eight hours a day and I was still working a lot. Um, I would honestly pay good money to be a morning person because I just feel like it would feel so much better and the world aligns with it more, but I'm just not. That could maybe be your next book. Oh you do it here as a morning person. Um, so as we were talking about before we started recording, um, we're not far from party season now. What advice would you give to someone who's dreading the thought of the kind of obligatory sort of festive mm-hmm. whirlwind? What advice would you would you give? I... It's so interesting. I just, this is probably off topic, but I saw this cartoon recently, this illustration about like, basically it was like a timeline of what you feel before you go to a party and like right before you get to the party, it says you feel total suffering, (laughs) which I think is true. And then at the party, as soon as you get there, you feel really happy for like an hour or two. This is is for an introvert. And then like you slowly start to like, like slide back into suffering. Mm. Um, So I would say just accept that you have to do it. There will be suffering beforehand and just leave after two hours if you really want to. Mm. And I find that if you just- Early exits good. Early exits are good. Don't say goodbye. You don't have to say goodbye. Mm. Don't do that. Cause then it just takes another hour to say goodbye and people Mm. notice you've left. Whereas like if you just sneak out, as long as it's like you're not abandoning anyone, I think that's totally fine. You just text them later being like, oh, I had to go see you later. Um, Well, I think I'll just sort of think about what happened at my networking events, which is where I was told like, you know, don't arrive late because then you already feel like everybody's already in a conversation and you can't break in. Mm. And also don't just leave after an hour because 
actually most people come to like networking events and they leave after 15 minutes because they hate it but it takes that long to warm up and feel like socially lubricated I guess um and I'd also say just focus on talking to one person that you like because Mm. that's what I do and focus on making one connection there are still lots of things that I make myself go to that I don't want to go to that I know I have to and I just think yeah like leave after a few hours um don't say goodbye. I also just think knowing you're an introvert and that you might not necessarily like it, but you're going to do it anyway helps a lot as opposed mm-hmm. to me like previously going through life being like, why do I hate this and everyone else loves this? Mm-hmm. You can look <laughs> at it as sort of eating broccoli as opposed to, you know, it's something you have to do. Not that there's anything wrong with broccoli. I quite like broccoli. But <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? Actually, um, since the book has come out, I've had so many people get in touch saying, this feels like my diary. This is This is my life. This is how I feel. And... I've been incredibly surprised by that. And I think there is great comfort in knowing that actually whatever party you go to, a third to half those people don't want to be there either. Yeah, you're so right. So find that person and be like, oh, this sucks. But like, if you bond with them, then it actually becomes a great experience. Mm-hmm. We're, we're running out of time, uh, so I'm going to have to let you go soon. But before I do, just a few final things. First of all, I have to ask you, can you explain the difference between surface talk and deep talk because I I found that distinction very interesting. Yes. Um, So I went to this class at the School of Life called How to Be Social and they talked about the differences between, yeah, surface talk and deep talk. So surface talk is probably what we mostly kind of hover in, like it's admin, it's the weather, it's our commutes, it's what we're having for dinner, it's what we're doing at the weekend, it's the movie we just saw. And deep talk is actually our real fears and desires and vulnerabilities and this instructor at the class said that if you really want to make meaningful connections with people, you have to go into deep talk. You can't just stay surface. And I felt so great when I actually heard him say that because I hate hovering in small talk for hours. Mm, me I too, yeah. I just I kind of try to force it into deep talk. Okay, but how do you really feel about that? Or like, let's talk about something deeper. Um, and I think it, I don't know, is it a British thing to like sometimes go and retreat into safety, into small talk? Perhaps. And not perhaps. want to reveal yourself? Um, and then as a way to sort of test this theory, the instructor paired us off um, with strangers, total strangers. And I was paired with this like super handsome man. And he <laughs> said, we're going to play this game called vulnerability tennis, where all you can say to each other is like embarrassing things about yourself. Um, so I'd say something really embarrassing that I'm humiliated by. And then he would reply with his own vulnerability and like back and forth you go. And by the end, you just kind of feel so amazing because someone shared this with you and you know you're not alone because other people also feel lonely or inferior or not good enough or like they aren't doing things correctly or they're not like in the right relationship. Um, and ever since then, I've always tried to like kind of steer things to deep talk if it feels appropriate, like mm-hmm. at dinner parties mm-hmm. where maybe for an hour we've been in surface talk, I'll just try to go a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. I'm that mm-hmm. nightmare person now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, one final question then before I let you go, which I ask everyone, which is if you could go back and give your younger self, and that could be the aspiring writer, it could be the shy little girl, um, one piece of advice, what would it be? I think to keep being brave because I was always scared and I kept doing things like moving to China, then moving to Australia, then moving to London, taking these big steps. And they, I was always so scared that they wouldn't work out. You know, I like wouldn't sleep because of them. But I think continuing to do that 
has been important. And also, sorry, I thought of another one. Don't ask for permission to do the things you want to do. Like, no mm. one's going to ask you to write a book. No one's, well, no, they're not, really. Unless you're famous, they're not. No one's going to ask you to write a book <laughs> or your TV show or do any of these things. You have to decide for yourself. And I feel like so many of us are like, well, who's going to ask me to do that thing? No one is. You have to do it. Mm. Mm. That's a great note to end on. Great advice. Jessica, thank you so much. You've been such a joy to speak to. And to everyone listening, I'm sorry I'm late. I didn't want to come is out now. So do buy it. Uh, That's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to the Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And also, if you like the podcast, um, please do review it. I can't tell you how thrilled I am when I see a review and it really makes a difference in the charts as well. Uh, So I'd be very grateful. Uh, And until next week, thank you very much and goodbye.